Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader with the Turning Point here on PRN.FM. We are here every Monday at 4 p.m., and uh, there are podcasts available afterwards. Of course, there are archives of all these podcasts. <clears throat> if you have, uh, once again, I'll remind you, or if you're a new listener, remind you that if you have any comments, disagreements, anything you want to add, um, just pure applause and praise, I'd love to hear that. No, if you have any comments at all, just go to uh, my website, Fader Files, F-E-D-F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com, and uh, you can get in touch with me that way. Also join my mailing list. And uh, I have a blog where I intermittently uh, put on essays. I just put on a new one yesterday and um, invite you all to comment on those, too. Uh, sometimes life seems like an endless war, right? 
and one way of looking at things emotionally, philosophically, life is like an endless war. But it's certainly an endless war. That may be or may not be, maybe just in your imagination. But if for sure, it's a real endless war as far as the United States government is concerned, especially our, um, our military, the Pentagon. And uh, we're going to talk to somebody today who keeps track of uh, the Pentagon's spending. And more specifically, we're going to talk today about uh, the way they waste money. And waste may actually turn out to be a polite word for, for what they do with the money. Uh, we have with us William Hartung, who is the director of the Arms and Security Project of the Center for International Policy. Hiya. Hi. Welcome. I'm glad for having me. Yeah, sure. Um, the article you wrote for Tom Dispatch, uh, by the way, listeners, if you are not subscribed to this um, website, Tom Dispatch, you should be. They have wonderful articles appear every week. Tom Dispatch, T-O-M-D-I-S-P-A-T-C-H. And the article that Mr. Hartung wrung on Tom Dispatch recently is called How Not to Audit the Pentagon. Five decades later, the military waste machine is running full speed ahead. And um, let me give people a little idea of your background before we uh, go into the article. Um, William Hartung is the author of Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin, and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex. Prophets is spelled here P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, but I assume it has uh, the same spelling as the other meaning, right? And... um, that is by Nation Books, published in 2011, and he's the co-editor with Miriam Pemberton of Lessons from Iraq, Avoiding the Next War. And uh, from July uh, 2007 through March 2011, Mr. Hartung was a director of the Arms and Security Initiative at the New America Foundation. He has had um, articles on security issues which have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, The Nation, etc., and uh, he has been a featured expert on national security issues on CBS, 60 Minutes, NBC Nightly News, and other many other local, regional, and international radio outlets. Um, so how not to audit the Pentagon? Let, let me read a, a couple of lines from the beginning, and then we can get into it. that be okay? Sure. Okay. Um, it says here, from, from spending $150 million on private villas for a handful of personnel in Afghanistan, to blowing $2.7 billion on an air surveillance balloon that doesn't work. $2.7 billion. The latest revelations of waste at the Pentagon are just the most recent howlers in a long line of similar stories stretching back at least five decades. Other hot-off-the-presses examples would include the Army's purchase of helicopter gears worth $500 each for $8,000 each and the accumulation of billions of dollars worth of weapons components that will never be used. And uh, then there's one that would have to be on everyone's favorite Pentagon waste story list. The spending of $50,000 to investigate the bomb-detecting capabilities of African elephants. Really? They really did that? (laughs) Yes, indeed. How did it work out for them? Uh, Well, they decided that, in fact, it wasn't a good way to detect bombs, so... Uh, they, they might have figured that out without the 50,000. Well, are they going to airlift uh, elephants to other places where they don't occur naturally to detect bombs, like Afghanistan or maybe uh, Czechoslovakia or whatever? They're just going to do it in place in Africa or India, I guess. Um, so it didn't work out. 
No, and, no. One of their well, one of many bad ideas. And so, I mean, these are just fairly recent. Uh, this money in Afghanistan. I mean, I think we've all seen photographs or descriptions of these giant um, collections of bricks of ten thousand dollars. You know, uh, packaged to be like a couple of uh, hundred million dollars that have just been given away, and nobody can even have an accounting of it. And it's part of the article here, not to audit, how not to audit the Pentagon. Nobody knows where uh, this money is gone, and nobody seems to be uh, held accountable for it. So you're saying in here, this is all this stuff, as outrageous as it is, is just the tip of the iceberg, right? Well, yes. The, the smaller examples, I think, grab attention because people sort of can understand that, you know, spending $8,000 on a gear doesn't make sense or, you know, why do we have people sitting in private villas in Afghanistan? Um, but there's, there's sort of, it's, it's, you know, large parts of the Pentagon budget are waste uh, if you think about whether any of this stuff is usable or necessary. So uh, I talk about the F-35 combat aircraft, which is going to cost $1.4 trillion over its lifetime. And uh, it's had all kinds of performance issues, and it's doubled in cost, and they haven't really explained what it's for. Uh, you know, they, they claim it's partly to address the, the quote-unquote Chinese threat, but I, I see no circumstance under which the U.S. and China are going to have, be having aerial dogfights, given that they're both nuclear-armed powers um and so that's that's a re that's a recent example i mean uh the, and, and i want to talk about that more later because it is one of the most recent certainly it's the most outrageous and expensive example but just going through the uh the um the article here um what you're saying one of the points you're making here is that uh uh you say that uh it's time to rethink exactly what this uh, profusion of such cases, this constant decades-long waste. Um, and by the way, for waste, would you equate waste with corruption? I think in many cases it, it does involve corruption. I think there's some a healthy dose of incompetence thrown in and um, kind of ideological hubris, but, but I think certainly there's a lot of corruption in the mix. Hmm. Uh, and that's up and down the line, right? I mean, in terms of the uh, the manufacturers of these things, where they wind up, anywhere down the line, including perhaps even people at the Pentagon. So, but that's a suggestion. Nobody's uh, nobody's ever actually held anybody accountable, as far as I know, have they? There have been a few cases which kind of stand out. You know, exceptions that prove the rule. Mm -hmm. um, there was a case uh, after nine one one where the um, Boeing got them to insert a hundred. Um, tanker planes into the budget that were not needed, had not been requested. Uh, they gave huge amounts of money to Ted Stevens from Alaska, the late Ted Stevens, who ran appropriations then. He slipped it into the bill when nobody was looking. And um, Senator John McCain uh, got exercised about this, and he subpoenaed a bunch of the emails uh, behind this project. And ends up the uh, person overseeing it in the Pentagon had been negotiating for a job with Boeing while she was giving them oh, right. uh, giving away the store on this thing, and she did do um, I think nine months at one of those sort of club fed style um, mm -hmm. prisons, uh, as did one of the other executives. But th this is something that goes on in one form or another routinely, and, and so this was uh, a unique case. And I, I think um, mm -hmm. if, if there was vigorous enforcement, it would be happening. You know, regularly. 
You say, and one of the important points is you say far from being aberrations in need of correction to make the Pentagon run more efficiently, wasting vast sums of taxpayer dollars should be seen as a way of life for the Department of Defense. And you said, you mentioned uh, five decades. Why, why did you decide on five decades? Did it not happen much before that? Or what was the reason that you decided to mention that? I think it became a much bigger public issue in the 60s. Um, I, I have no doubt it was going on before that. Um, but uh, there was a whistleblower, Ernest, Ernest Fitzgerald, in the Air Force who uh, put out information about how they had uh, doubled the price of the C-5A transport, which was to be used for essentially get troops all over the world for Vietnam-style interventions. And um, this, is Lock, were, this is Lockheed, too, right? Lockheed, yes. Yeah. So the wings were cracking. Uh, the, the cost was going up. The Air Force was trying to cover it up. And um, Fitzgerald risked his job to, to get this information out, working with um, Senator Proxmire from Wisconsin. Uh, and so and it became a huge scandal, which was um, kind of set the stage for a period of more critical um, media coverage of this kind of thing, of the kind we don't see really today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I sort of started pretty much from when it became a big public issue, and, and also the documentation uh, from that point forward is much um, more detailed. They, they buried this stuff pretty deep in the McCarthy era, and you know some academics have dug up some of the dirt now, but it, the, the C-5A case was sort of a a very uh, telling example. Well, also, we were at war then. I mean, I assume that uh, this kind of thing started somewhere in World War II, um, and then probably has never ceased since then. But uh, I guess since before that, the uh, the uh, the armed services were really, uh, you know, low-key and downplayed, and, you know, that wasn't such a big issue. But um, what finally then, and then something happened that uh, is even more astounding, of course, that... Uh, you said the C the C five A fiasco combined with Lockheed's financial troubles with its L one o one one airliner project, uh, they went to Congress and asked for a two hundred fifty million dollar bailout. Right? Yes, uh, it wasn't enough that they were gouging us on the C five. Uh, they they were so incompetent on the civilian side of their business. Um, and Fitzgerald, to his credit, got them to claw back some of the overruns for the taxpayers. But anyway, so they came to Congress, you know, hat in hand, and basically said uh, it was more of a threat than a request. I mean, they said if you don't fund us, you know, we're going to have to shut down, and tens of thousands of jobs all over the country are going to be lost. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, the uh, senator who gave the decisive vote, uh, 49 to 48, to give them the bailout, cited the jobs issue. He said, I don't want to be the one to throw all these people out of work. So... Uh, it was it was job blackmail, basically saying you know we're gonna we're holding these jobs at risk if if you don't give us what we want. And of course, if that was routinely the case, then nothing would ever change. They'd never cut anything at the Pentagon, which of course would serve the contractors quite well. Well, uh, how true is that? I mean, obviously, you mentioned in the article that this is a tactic that uh, companies like this and other companies too routinely uh, bring up when they come to Congress. You know, you better not because, you know, my constituents, jobs, the economy, et cetera. How, Lockheed makes a habit of this, right? Yes. Uh, they did it with, um, they're doing it now with the F-35, and they've made even more outrageous claims as to the number of jobs than they did, uh, you know, back in the old days. Uh, and I looked at it, and they exaggerated the number of jobs involved probably 
they've claimed at least twice as many as were likely to be uh, created. And also they didn't point out that any other way you would spend that money would create probably one and a half to two times as many jobs in infrastructure, education, environmental protection, and so forth. So what we would need to get out from under the job blackmail would be uh, a better investment strategy that, that um, addresses the needs of the country. But, of course, that's been bottled up in the current Congress. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it's into the nature of something that needs to be demanded but may take a while to, um, to come about. But, but certainly if we were concerned about jobs, we wouldn't be throwing money at things like the F-35, uh, which wastes tons of money and, and employs relatively small numbers of people for those you know, billions and billions of dollars that are spent on it. Well, then, uh, you say in the article they're claiming um, that ultimately it'll produce 125,000 jobs in 46 states, but apparently nobody has really broken it down, right? No. I looked even at their own numbers, and there are about a dozen states where their idea of creating jobs was, you know, four people in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And my guess is those people were fictional. So, um, mm -hmm. But they like to give members the impression that they're a huge presence in their district, and they, they make up these fancy charts and interactive graphics that are supposed to show that. And members get nervous. You know, even if they can be, if one of their votes can be linked to reducing even a small number of jobs, they feel politically vulnerable. Uh, and so they, they get a lot of traction out of the jobs argument, although uh, on some of the bigger issues, uh, they haven't gotten what they've wanted. They, they wanted to lift the caps on Pentagon spending, which have been around for a few years. Mm -hmm. And they had this million jobs lost campaign. They spent all this money. They did all these ads. And they couldn't get them to lift the caps. And although, interestingly, a lot of that was because of libertarians who were um, budget hawks, less so than some of the liberal Democrats. Uh, but anyway, mm -hmm. there was a, a, a correlation of forces in Washington that uh, made it, for once, the industry didn't get what it demanded, even though it used the job blackmail argument. Now, back to the F-35, uh, which has got to be the all-time champion, maybe, you know, well, certainly it is in the history of uh, cost overruns and costs. And $1.4 trillion in procurement and operating costs over its lifetime. When did this, when did this project start? And do you, I mean, what are the reasons? When, when they're called before... What are the committees in the, in the House and the Senate? Who, who actually is supposed to be watching these people? Well, armed services and then uh, the Defense Subcommittee on Appropriations are the two primary committees that are supposed to be the watchdogs mm -hmm. over this. And uh, McCain, who often talks a good game, uh, you know, said that um, this was the most abysmal job of managing a program he had ever seen. But in the next breath, he said, well, but we need it. You know, so... He, even he, um, for all his, um, you know, not in my book, but in many people's view, he's, he's sort of this maverick who, who goes after the companies. Um, mm -hmm. He sort of gave back with one hand what he was threatening to take with another. So when did this, uh, when did this um, proposal for the F-35 originate? I mean, it must have been a long time to accumulate that much money already. Yeah, well, the, it started in the 90s, oh, uh, oh, okay. and it had a couple different names. Um, it was Joint Attack Strike uh, System, they called it JAST, mm -hmm. and then they had um, Joint Strike Fighter, which is sort of the generic name for it. And um, the competition in the mid-90s ended up in them selecting Boeing and, and uh, Lockheed Martin as the two 
competitors. And there was so much money involved that uh, McDonnell Douglas, which then existed as a separate company, uh, wasn't sure what their future was going to be, so they let Boeing gobble them up. So um, this was such a huge program that it actually restructured the um, <laughs> defense industry, you know, once they made that decision. And then they didn't actually give a production contract till uh, 2001. And the, um, the guy who headed procurement at the Pentagon, uh, who was right at the middle of making this decision, uh, quit his job to go on the board of Lockheed Martin shortly after that, mm. uh, sort of highlighting this revolving door where people from uh, government cash in with jobs in industry, people from industry go into government and then help their former companies. And there's, there's um, you know, in any given year, there may be 800 to 1,000 people that we know about have sort of spun through the revolving door. Um, yeah, I, you see this in every, uh, you know, the FCC and then uh, communications companies. I mean, there's no end to it. So Right, and banking. And, and, oh, yeah. I mean, I think the defense industry may have pioneered it, but it's certainly a, across the board, and most big industries do something like this now. Now, so the F-35, what's the current state of this um, absurdly expensive plane? It's not even functional, right? No, no, they've they've um, talked about certifying it for limited combat duty, but it's got things like, um, you know, it can't reliably identify what it's shooting at on the ground. It can't communicate with soldiers on the ground reliably. Uh, there's been issues of wing cracks. Uh, there's been issues of the fact that, it, you know, they've done uh, combat simulations against current generation fighter planes, which the F-35 has lost decisively. Um so there's, there's a lot of issues uh, with performance and cost, but also they want to build almost 2,500 of these things, and they haven't explained what they're for. Um, you know, I mean, if you accept, even if you accept the mission that the United States should be the global policeman, mm -hmm. um, this wouldn't be the best um, way of carrying that out. So uh, I think even that's why you even get some conservatives raising alarm bells about this, uh, even those who are uh, militarists and whose positions I would opposed vigorously on, on policy level. Well, um, so it's just a question of, um, of of the public being aware of this. I mean, uh, you know, pardon my cynicism, but I mean, uh, you know, this is happening more and more as I, as I look at things. I'm looking back at things over the decades. That whatever, um, and the NSA, for instance, is a good example, you know, where billions and billions of dollars have been spent and are being spent to spy on the American public, and it takes one person to sort of blow the whistle on them. But this kind of thing is happening right now. This F-35 thing is happening right now. And, uh, you know, everybody in the country, you know, nobody can find a job. Everything is, you know, the highways are completely cracked. They're broken. Bridges are falling into rivers. Uh, you know, cities are falling apart. Education is a disaster. The water is poisoned. And yet they go on doing this. Uh, what is this? <laughs> Pardon me. What are these representatives representing? Who are they representing? What's going on here? Well, to a large degree, certainly the companies get first uh, uh, call on their attention mm -hmm. because of all the money they give them. And then, if one campaign. of their former campaign, yeah, campaign money, uh, if one of their former staffers happens to be working for the company, then they increase the skids even further. If the jobs argument is made, if the companies are allowed to do some of the studies that determine what the threat is and then turn around and say, oh, I can help you with that. Let me build this weapon. Um, so it, it's an insidious kind of uh, symbiosis between the industry and government. And you'll have some people who stand up, uh, but they tend to be 
the exception. I mean, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, has gone after the waste issue uh, you know, when he was in Congress. He went after um, some of the they subsidized bonuses for uh, Pentagon executives, uh, uh, industry executives in, in the 90s, and he passed a bill to claw back some of that money. But even he, this hasn't been his primary issue. His primary issue, of course, is inequality and, and domestic investment. So, uh, you know, when you can't get a few people even who care in the Congress and who aren't bought off, uh, they can often achieve a fair amount in terms of blocking some of the more egregious uh, schemes there. But uh, it's hard to find those people because you, the hawks, you know, support ideologically. Some of the liberals feel constrained because of jobs in their districts and so forth. So, um, you know, to build a coalition to, to beat one of these things can be difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they did it on the F-22 where they capped the program. They did it to stop... Uh, a second engine program for the F-35 that was not needed, but which GE wanted. Um, but, you know, these kinds of victories take huge mobilizations, and there hasn't been a lot of um, effort so far to go after the top line of the Pentagon, um, except, well, this kind of liberal, uh, libertarian coalition has kept caps on for reasons, but, but at huge levels, you know, more, so far more than we need. Well, I mean, I guess uh, it's like everything else when something is more visible, like, you know, there's a war in Vietnam or Afghanistan or Iraq and people are dying and soldiers are coming back in, uh, finally, if you're allowed to see pictures of it, you know, in um, in caskets. I mean, then people pay attention and then it's affecting people's lives on a daily basis. But this kind of thing goes on all the time. I mean, the government sort of runs itself without... Uh, Without the public being aware of it or being involved in it at all, so um, and, but the the Pentagon waste and corruption is really extraordinary. In 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 um, in the eighties under President Reagan, uh, some of this was noticed and stopped, right? Was slowed yes. down. Yes, uh, there was a woman named Dina Razor who worked with whistleblowers at the Pentagon, including Ernest Fitzgerald, who had been reinstated as a result of a lawsuit that he uh, brought, uh, and. Uh, they found at some of these parts issues, like, you know, a $640 toilet seat and $7,600 for a coffee maker for one of Lockheed's jets, uh, you know, hammers that should have been $9 for $500. And um, this penetrated to a significant degree in the media, um, you know, things that we've, we would never see today, like, um, you know, Johnny Carson putting in his monologue and whistleblowers being interviewed on the Today Show and hundreds of articles and uh, actual hearings in Congress, not where just people come and wave at you and then leave to vote, but actually ask uh, informed questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this was part of the uh, successful effort to cap and start rolling back the Reagan uh, Pentagon buildup, because Casper um, Weinberger, who was uh, Secretary of Defense then, uh, was fond of saying, well, we need every penny in there. It's all for defense and so forth. Right. And once these waste examples start pouring out of the Pentagon, a lot of people realize that, well, obviously they don't need every penny because look at the way they're uh, wasting huge sums of it. So, um, you know, I think that had an uh, important effect at that particular turning point. But uh, the problem has been it, it happens episodically. You, you'll see kind of an outburst of interest and, and um, pressure, you know, every 10 years or so. Uh, and so the challenge would be to keep that going at a consistent level. I, I think that would require not just people knowing about it, but people feeling like they can make a difference in this particular political system that we're in the midst of, right, with all the money in politics and, and corruption and so forth. Well, one, if you just tune in, you're listening to William Hartung, H-A-R-T-U-N-G, and he's the director of the Arms and Security Project, 
of the Center for International Policy. Um, once again, there is no war during that time. Uh, you know, once there's a war, the country is uh, mobilized and, you know, patriotized and everybody, you know, pitches in. And if you don't agree with uh, every penny that needs to go to the Pentagon, then you're unpatriotic, having had some experience with this and as a war protester in the 60s. I mean, you're, you know, go back to Cuba, go home, you're a communist, that kind of thing. But there's a war going on. Um, like, for instance, starting in 2001 on 9-11, uh, who would dare question, I and mean, this is part of what's going on now with the, uh, the primary race, who would dare question anything that the government wanted to do? You know, this is the, the era of endless war, and terrorism is the greatest discovery. I mean, you know, not that it's not real in a lot of cases, but it's the greatest discovery that Pentagon has ever made for its argument that we need every penny, every minute, and to question it would just be wrong, right? Yes, exactly. They're, they're using the terrorism issue to cash in big time because a lot of the stuff they're buying is stuff they wanted anyway that isn't really directed at terrorism, things like new nuclear bombers, and, and they want to actually do a whole new generation of nuclear weapons for a trillion dollars over 30 years. So that's another huge sinkhole of money, and, and uh, not a penny of that money has anything to do with fighting ISIS or stopping an attack in Paris or... Uh, you know, any of the things that were of actual existing terrorism that, that one could point to. And, and then the notion that um, the war on terrorism is going to go on forever, as some of the administration officials, uh, past and current, have said, is couldn't be better for the industry. I mean, mm -hmm. it's sort of like, a, as you said, endless war and therefore an endless ability to rationalize things that, that we don't need and, and that are not going to not only not help us, but are going to make matters worse in many cases. So it it takes some it takes some certainly it takes knowledge and then it takes some guts to stand up for anybody especially a politician but for anybody at all uh, in this uh, constant patriotic fever that the country seems to be in or has been whipped up into uh, to question these things right yes I think it varies over time but as you said after nine one one it was particularly harsh um, and that's when the Pentagon made huge gains in its budget you know. Some of the executives, the guy at Boeing, said, well, you know, anybody in Congress who opposes us now is going to be looking for a no job next November. Uh, so they, they seized on that, and, and they've been riding it to a long, uh, significant extent since then. You know, in my own work, I've found that there's, um, you know, less resistance now in the sense there's more questioning of the government. Uh, but terrorism is no question the trump card mm -hmm. uh, on, on the Pentagon issue, and it's the hardest thing to... Uh, get people to think through. There's kind of an emotional reaction, which is understandable, sure. to feeling under threat. What are these people going to do next? Are they trying to get, you know, a dirty bomb or uh, or worse? Um, but but, the, the, but it, it, it gets in the way of, of people realizing that a lot of what they're spending money on is completely unrelated to that, really yeah. is about feathering their own nest. Yeah. Well, the F-35 isn't going to stop, uh, you know, somebody from setting off a bomb in the subway or shooting a bunch of people on the streets of a city or anything like that. So uh, is there somebody within, I mean, there's inspector generals um, and uh, sort of like, um, you know, internal people who investigate agencies. Uh, who is that for the Pentagon? Well, they have their own inspector general, and they have uh, done some decent examples, um, but they've been criticized for not being um, as systematic as they should be. Uh, the Government Accountability Office sometimes finds, uh, you know, egregious cases. They've been very helpful in the critiques of the F-35. Pentagon has an independent testing office that points out a lot of the problems with these things. There's a special inspector general.
for Afghan Reconstruction, who's very good, who's um, he's just you know almost weekly uh, come mm-hmm. up with a new example of how money's being wasted over there. And so the the problem has been that next step. You know, uh, are we going to take action on these things, or are they just going to be um, outrageous examples that kind of just bombard us? You know, weekly, monthly, yearly. Well, when the when the um, the special inspector general, the office is called SIGAR, S I G A R. When they bring up this stuff, who do they bring it up with? I mean, are they testifying in front of committees? Are they suggesting? Are they sending reports to the executive branch, to the legislative branch? To uh, what 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 happens after they discover this? Well, pretty much all of the above. They send reports to the executive, um, to Congress. They do a lot of media. Um, the hearing issue is interesting. They, they, they do a fair amount of hearings, but one of them recently was actually an attempt um, by the Pentagon to uh, undermine Cigar. Um, they had come up with a figure that the Pentagon gave them about spending $43 million on a gas station that was never used. Uh, and then the night before the hearing, they put out all this contradictory information, which later was proven to be false, but they thought if they gave it out late enough, they would cast a cloud over the inspector general and therefore make it harder for him to go after them in the future. Mm-hmm. But he did a very good job of savaging the Pentagon witness and even um, people like Kelly Ayotte, a Republican from New Hampshire, who's quite a hawk, was, was right in the face of the Pentagon person about it. So it kind of backfired, but there, but there is, has been this attempt to uh, defund Cigar, to um, you know spread propaganda, to try to undermine it. Um, so, so the interactions with Congress and executive branch have been mixed, to put it mildly. There's been a certain, some welcoming of it among some executives and members and, and some attempts to undermine it uh, in other places. Well, as far as an audit goes, um, <clears throat> most places, um, well, I mean, a lot of companies and a lot of agencies audit themselves, and a lot of them uh, are audited by outside firms. Uh, but the the Pentagon has been, um, you say here, it's strangely incapable of doing a simple audit of itself. I mean, after all, what, what their history is like, why would anybody trust them to audit themselves? But if somebody, if they didn't audit themselves, who would audit them? Well, they need, uh, I think we, we need to expand on that. Um, yeah. I, I think um, that they need an outside firm to do it. Um, and somehow I think it's got to be... Um, I think it's got to be independent, both as an independent institution, uh, independently funded, so they're not relying on the Pentagon for business, you know, for to get paid, uh, and also making sure that the people doing it don't have conflicts of interest because they've been in the Pentagon before or the industry, and they haven't um, done that. In fact, the most recent case where they the Marines claimed that they had a clean audit um, was later revealed that some of those numbers were fudged, and one of the accountants um, was friendly with an industry person. So, um, yeah, I think it does have to be independent. So I think that, you know, the phrase in my article about auditing itself, I think, was um, kind of shorthand that, that probably didn't uh, mm-hmm. make it as clear as it should be. You say the uh, Department of Defense uh, was ever brought under genuine scrutiny and control. People might start to question, and you mentioned this before, whether a country that already has the capability to destroy the world many times over needs to spend a trillion dollars more over the next three decades on a new generation of ballistic missiles, bombers, and nuclear-armed submarines. Um, 
So this is an incestuous relationship between certain politi- between politicians, uh, between um, a kind of um, an, an atmosphere of terror that has been permanently created in the public's mind between uh, the weapons manufacturers and uh, the, uh, the Pentagon itself. This is a serious thing to break. I mean, this is I, we always go back to Eisenhower's original, you know, military-industrial complex. I mean, this is something you know that started during World War II and kept going on after World War II, and now it's you know it's as bad as it's ever been. Um, and you, you know, you talked about this before, but uh, it's something. And now we're in wars all over the place. There is literally endless war. I mean, what are we in, 150 different countries? Uh, you know, and now we're, we're basically fighting a war again in Syria, and there's more and more troops in Iraq. So I don't know. I don't know how it is. Last question. Whoa. <laughs> again, I'll ask you. The solution is what? Awareness? Uh, a political candidate? We have one political candidate now who's running who might do something about this. But what is the solution to this? How is a regular citizen supposed to feel any hope here? Well, I think awareness and action and pressure, and I think an understanding that it may be a long-term undertaking. Um, you know, I'm hoping that a lot of the younger people who've been attracted to the Sanders campaign don't view this election as a one-shot, but keep fighting corporate power in various ways uh, going forward, because uh, I think the short-termism in our culture uh, also undermines our efforts to do this. Uh, if, you know, if we haven't solved it tomorrow, therefore um, we can't do anything. Um, but I think, you know, there's groups doing good work. Uh, there's groups like the Friends Committee on National Legislation, uh, the Peace Action, which is a national grassroots peace organization. Uh, there's groups that focus particularly on kind of the, the waste angle, like the Project on Government Oversight, which is a a successor to the group that Dean and Razor started in the 80s to expose the $640 toilet seat and so forth. Uh, I think people can uh, try to get their organizations to have speakers and learn about this, uh, do letters to the editor. I think the bottom line is that the challenge here is the same challenge we have to our democracy as a whole and, and on many issues, which is how do people uh, feel encouraged to participate given the obstacles. But I, I think... Uh, you know, the change can be brought about, but it, it's got to be conceived as um, kind of a stubborn, longer-term effort, not not something that we'll see change, you mm-hmm. know, this year. And I think, you know, Sanders has uh, implied that in talking about needing a political revolution. And I think when he founded his campaign, he partly saw it as a way to build a movement on these issues, understanding that he might or might not win. And he's done, I think, a lot better than anybody could have anticipated because of the concerns about, particularly about misplaced corporate power and money in politics, both of which play heavily on the arms lobby, military-industrial complex uh, issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can people uh, read articles that you write on a regular basis or uh, check and see what's going on with uh, with you? Uh, well, the, everything that I write is on our website, uh, ciponline.org. I also write reasonably often for Huffington Post. Uh, oh, okay. And some of those kind of summarize my arguments and, and some of the big issues. Um, so those are, my, those are probably the two easiest ways. Okay, well, I, I appreciate you coming on and talking about this. Uh, you know, any kind of uh, awareness is better than none at all, and I really do appreciate the work you're doing and, and coming on the show. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a little break here, and then I'll be back in just a minute.
Okay, we're back, and um, <clears throat> I had a, I invited another guest on um, about a program that that's uh, maybe people don't know much about, but it's called the JROTC. Remember back uh, when you were in college, way back then, uh, there was the ROTC program, and um, the uh, but what's going on now is the Pentagon is recruiting in uh, in poor districts and poor areas in high school. Uh, and uh, they're not waiting for people to go to college. They're actually trying to get people uh, recruited as they are in high school uh, because, there are, well, there's no jobs in this economy. And one of the reasons why, among many other reasons, is that uh, so much money is being, um, is being spent on uh, the Pentagon. And these are skilled uh, union jobs and uh, very hard to get. So it's the same old story um, as it's happened in many places and many times, especially when there was a draft, that the poorest people wind up, or when there's a peacetime army even now, uh, that sometimes the poorest people wind up since there's nothing else to do. But now they actually uh, have a, a vast national program to go into uh, high schools, and um, the, the JROTC. And if you remember back in college, the ROTC, and I remember this. I mean, there's still an ROTC, I assume, right? It's been a long time. Is there still an ROTC in college? I guess there is. Um, I'm assuming there is because they need a volunteer army, so they always have to have people trained and ready to fight our enemies wherever they are, and apparently they're everywhere. Um, and I remember ROTC from college. This is during the Vietnam era, and it's uh, it's actually ROTC was, um, and you may you may remember this too. It was one, it was one of the symbols of. Um, of the us against them, you know the ROTC was uh, was people who were unquestionably patriotic and ready to go to war with the communists to to save our country. And um, it, when I think back on it now, it, it was one of the symbols actually of uh, of my youth and that kind of protest era during the Civil War that was going on in this country. You know, with one generation against another, with. Uh, with uh, the vast American public having to be rallied to the patriotic flag and willing to do so without really quite knowing what was going on over there, told by the government or by the press generally that cooperated until near got to be uh, absurd and there was no good reason to cooperate anymore and they saw evidence to the opposite, that they had to join to fight the communists, the communists were going to take over the world. Once it was the Nazis and it was the communists, not that the Russians didn't want to, in their own way, but not as much as anybody ever said. But here is a country, you know, uh, Vietnam. Uh, these people, not there are no Chinese uh, troops, no Russian troops in there, just Vietnamese people trying to have a revolution to take back their country from uh, long, long, long time colonial imperialistic rule by the French, and then we took over for the French. Anyhow, ROTC was on the campus of my college because it was... Um, I went to Hofstra, Hofstra College. Now it's Hofstra University, and I think they have a pretty good 
record and standing in the world. It was now they have a law school and everything else. But in my day, it was a very small college out on Long Island, and you went there as I went there. Um, a lot of people went there who really didn't have uh, academic interest or the grade average to get into a better college. And uh, this was a local school. It was out on Long Island. I lived in Queens, so it was a sh- about a half-hour drive to Hempstead in Long Island from where I lived. And it's where I wound up because most of the people in my high school, I went to high school in the city, uh, people who didn't have any money, and most people, that was most people where I went to high school, or hardly any money at all, um, they weren't headed for Ivy League schools. They were going into the city college system, and that was Queens College, Brooklyn, Hunter, City College, and um, I think I'm forgetting one, but um, that's where they would go. But you had to have at the time, this is before they lowered admission standards, they had to have you had to have a really good average. I forget what it was, something like in the high 80s or 90 as an average, which was pretty good. And um, I had, I never studied. I never looked at a book. And uh, there are many reasons for that. So I wound up trying to get into any college I could finally. And uh, I wound up at uh, Hofstra College out on Long Island. And they had an active ROTC program because the college, it was compulsory. It wasn't just something you would choose to join. It was compulsory for all um, males to join uh, ROTC, to be in ROTC, because Hofstra University, uh, Hofstra College, most of the land uh, on which it was built, or a good portion of it, uh, was leased from the government with some kind of 99-year lease. And the government, one of their requirements was that uh, all males had to train and had to go into ROTC. Uh, ROTC, even the name of it, ROTC, it sounds like uh, rot or rats. <laughs> Something from a Jay Crumb cartoon, Rotsy, right? So, um, uh, you know, so everybody had to join. The only way out of it was if you were disabled in some way. and uh, Or, for some bizarre reason, if you joined the marching band. And I was in the marching band. I deliberately joined the marching band. I, would, I was going to go into the band anyhow. They had a concert band, which I joined. I played the trombone, of all things. Not well, but well enough to be in the band. Hit the right notes most of the time. But if you, you were in the marching band, and the concert band also was the marching band, you could get out of being in ROTC. I don't know who came up with this, but I'm glad they did, because there was no way I was ever going to join ROTC. And this was, way, this was before, this is 1962, this is before Vietnam was an issue in this country, although we were well involved by then, but uh, nobody really knew about it. And it was in 1964, 65, before anybody really understood that. Um, well, that's a, how much uh, how much time do we have left? Let's see. Just give me an idea. We have okay, good, thanks. Um, yeah, you know, so I, in 1962, but even so, there was no way I was going to join, uh, put on a uniform, and march around, and be prepared uh, to uh, you know uh, be called up, or when I graduated, become fighting, you know, become active, become a lieutenant. Uh, in some war someplace. There was no way I wanted to do that. And this is, I say, before even Vietnam. Um, and since I had to go there, there was no other way for me to go. And we didn't have that much money at all in my house. So one reason I was able to go to Hofstra was because I got a state regent's scholarship. If you're old enough, do they still have that? <laughs> I keep asking these things because I'm so far away. That's 50. I'm talking about more than 50 years ago. So um, I don't really know. And... Um, uh, my kids went to uh, to private colleges, and they got scholarships, but uh, they didn't go to college in New York State. They went out in the Midwest. 
And, um, well, anyhow, I got a Regent scholarship, and uh, then I, uh, I was able to, uh, to afford to go to Hofstra. One reason I didn't go to way to school, there was, there was some schools that I could have gone to upstate or even out of state that had, you know, I had a 70 average. You know, I barely passed most of my courses, and there were many reasons for that. There were, was it laziness? I don't know. Per, per being perverse? Was it because I just couldn't sit still, ADD, ADHD, LD, MD? I don't know. But uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't handle it. So uh, I went over this awful, terrible average. But I did manage to take the state regent's test uh, and I got a scholarship so I could go there. Um, and another reason was that I was going to have to commute to college. Either it was going to be a city college, which I couldn't get into, or and I would take public transportation for that. Or I was going to have to, uh, you know, get a used car and drive out to the island. And one of the reasons I had to commute, the, the main reason I had to commute and couldn't go away from my house was because of my fatal, sad, sick attraction between attraction, I don't know if that's the right word, but connection, intimate connection between uh, my mother and me. There was no way at that point that I could, uh, could have left her. My sister, God bless her, had uh, more nerve than I did and was able to leave that house. But, uh, you know, because of all the strange circumstances involved with my poor mother, um, there was no way that I was going to be allowed to leave. And by the time I got to be 18 and uh, ready to go off to college, I don't think I even had the emotional capability to go away to school. So it was going to be commuting to school, and that was the best I could do. Um, and Hofstra, as I mentioned, was a place uh, where you had sort of not the highest intellect in the world among students and certainly not the highest academic achievement. But uh, it was for mostly for local kids out on Long Island. That's who went there. And um, they were kids whose fathers had a lot. They, they had a good amount of money. These are people. Um, Hofstra was started in the 1930s. And you're talking about uh, business majors, the women. Uh, girls were uh, elementary ed majors. The, a lot of the boys were business majors. Um, they were just going to college because it was the thing to do, and it was a, a way to not have to go to work too soon. Uh, their fathers, uh, the uh, fathers, the families of these uh, of these kids, were pretty well off. I mean, not rich, not rich, but pretty well off. They owned. Let's see, they were like successful business people. They owned uh, car car dealerships, uh, uh, you know, large, uh, you know, plumbing supply uh, places. They had, uh, you know, maybe uh, small moving companies, but uh, several trucks, fleets of trucks, that kind of level of people who made good money and worked hard, you know, self, uh, you know, uh, these people who build their own businesses up from the ground and they, you know, made good money. But it was uh, out in Nassau County and it was... Um, it was a very conservative place, Nassau County, extremely conservative place, one of the most conservative counties uh, in all of the Northeast, probably. And um, this is uh, in the 60s. And um, so, uh, you know, and it was Hofstra, even though it was a commuter college, it was a small place. It had the usual mix of people who were, you know, it was fraternities and sororities and the jocks. They had a pretty good basketball team and a football team. Uh, and, of course, they commanded their own section of the uh, cafeteria. The rest of us nerds and losers <laughs> sat in the, in the other part of the cafeteria. Um, this is the kind of place it was. Uh, Kennedy, John Kennedy, uh, got shot and assassinated on a Friday. Uh, I think it was November 22nd. 
on that Monday when we got back to school, uh, there were a couple of guys who had set up tables, and they were selling busts of Kennedy. I think they were made out of plastic or metal. Somehow they managed to do that over the weekend and uh, making money on that. This is the kind of place it was, a conservative place. And, um, and I drove out every morning from, from Laurelton and Queens and back in the afternoon. And uh, I had to drive my, my used car, my, my beat-up old Studebaker Lark. It was called a Lark, L-A-R-K-E. <laughs> I don't think that was meant. It was meant for an older generation, but that's what I was driving. It was this little, uh, you know, sort of polite little car. And in a parking lot surrounded by Mustangs, Jaguars, you know, Falcons, Broncos, <laughs> all brand new, all shiny. And uh, that's where it was. But uh, so um, uh, the Vietnam War, you know, in 1964, the Gulf of Tonkin, and it starts up and the um, Vietnam became an issue. And much more so in 1965. And at that time, I was the uh, I was a member of the Young Democrats. We had about ten members on a campus that was entirely Republican, practically, and conservative, in a conservative county. And uh, I became the president of the uh, the Young Democrats. And ultimately, set I, I set up a table and uh, an anti-war table. You know, uh, I got the. Uh, club to uh, to set up a table and passed out anti-war uh, you know leaflets and protest information, and it was really you know extraordinary. We there was a student colonel of ROTC, and it was all the same guys. It was the football players and uh, the jocks and everybody in the uh, the this fraternity guys, and he would wear his uniform all the time. He was a short fire plug kind of guy with a crew cut, ready to go in the army and kill our enemies no matter who they were. Commies everywhere. And he came over to the table one day with his pals, and I was, uh, you know, handing out this stuff, and bang, kicks the table over. They picked this table up and smashed it into a thousand pieces, threatened us, told us we were faggots. You're all faggots, including the girls. <laughs> faggots, commies, and, uh, you know, you don't belong in this school. You don't belong in America. You should go home. So this is what was going on then. So, um, ROTC, I don't know, have things ever changed? But, you know... Uh, I hated these guys, and they hated me. It was like a civil war in the country now, as everybody knows who lived through that era. Um, and when I, when I think back on it now, it's so long ago. And I'm older now, and I'm headed in one direction that we're all headed in. And when I think back, I think of these guys, and they probably graduated, became officers, and went to Vietnam. A lot of them probably got killed. And a lot of them probably got wounded and maimed, and their lives were wrecked, a lot of them, or a good number of them. And here I am uh, talking about it. And in the end, you know, I don't feel that. I, I, how could you do that? This is for the young, right? This is a youthful thing. I don't feel that animosity, that hatred anymore for them. When I think back on it, it was like a war. But now it's just like a sad memory. Anyhow, ROTC. All right. I'll see you next week. Um, thanks for listening.
Keep the devil 